This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you powerful redemption stories of Americans who face crisis in their lives and how they're able to get through it. We've previously brought you energy entrepreneur Tim Dunn's story of losing his two-year-old granddaughter Mariah and how he dealt with that unthinkable tragedy. And today, Tim brings us an even more personal story about a crisis of his own creation. Because of a massive failure that I had like 20 years ago now, and I was in a deep, deep, dark valley looking for answers. You know, when you're in a deep valley, one of the main reasons you want to know is why did this happen? What is this about? How could a loving God let me go through this? You know, and now to some extent, it's not that different than when the child's in the crib at nine o'clock and you're still up and they want to know, how could you make me do this? (laughs) Okay. But that's hard to think that way when you're in a deep, dark valley, right? So I had a basically, I guess, a failure in business. And it it was a failure in a sense. It wasn't an economic failure. It was more of a Um, I didn't get my way failure. And in the course of that, things were said. And, you know, usually when you get criticized, you just brush it off. And and it was a criticism, really, I'd had many times. Uh, Basically, the criticism boiled down to you're arrogant and you stomp on people. So, interestingly enough, these days, when they look for CEOs, one of the characteristics they look for is arrogance as a positive thing. Okay, now I understand why that is, because when you're arrogant, you think you know everything and it actually does pave the way for you to say, I know I can get that done and just go get it done. The arrogance is actually a byproduct of the tendency to just go get stuff done. And the arrogance develops because you kind of consider everybody else doesn't know what they're doing because you know how to get stuff done. Okay, so. It's not actually the arrogance they're after, I don't think. it's the, That's a, a sign that you're a get-it-done person. And, and that's what I am. I'm really good at getting things done. But this time it's stuck. And, you know, I'm a, very, I'm a very devout believer, and I take very seriously the, you know, love your neighbors yourself command. So because I had to face, well, okay, I get stuff done, but am I actually loving my neighbor? And I had to really think about that and come to the point of saying, no, you know, I am, I'm getting stuff done, but I'm not seeking their best interest. I'm seeking mine and coming to grips with that reality. So the circumstances didn't matter at the end of the day. It was this internal realization that was the source of the pain. And there's a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where a boy turns into a dragon and this boy is a really rotten kid. I mean, he's a, everybody can't stand him. He's spoiled. He's a spoiled brat. He turns into a dragon, which is like a physical manifestation of being a spoiled brat, right? Dragons are all about themselves. And in the course of that, he kind of discovers that, well, gosh, you know, being helpful to other people is actually a better deal. And then comes a time where the ship's about to leave. He's going to be left. And Aslan, the cross figure, who's a form of a lion, comes to him and says, hey, do you want to be a boy again? And yeah, because he starts to scratch his dragon flesh off. And then the Aslan figure comes 
and says, you can't get all that off yourself. I got to get it. And takes his claws and just rips him apart. And Eustace is the boy's name. He comes out like a new person. Well, that's what it felt like to me. I went through two years of depression. And I never went, I never had diagnosed and stuff, but I had some people tell me on retrospect that the reason why you were sleepy in the afternoon, the reason why you lost your emotional fire, you were actually depressed. I was depressed because I was coming to grips with who I am. And I came to understand that, you know, when when the Galatians 5 says the spirit's lust against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit, and these two are at enemies with one another. There's actually three people in a boxing ring inside of me going to war, you know, two, two warring factions and a referee, and I'm the referee deciding who wins each bout. And I had always looked at it like there's two. There's me and there's the spirit. I'm always negotiating with the spirit of, you know, how, how much do I have to do to make you okay? But really, my old self, you know, was the part that was negotiating that. And, and I would judge myself as okay as compared to other people, which made me a Pharisee, you know. And, and actually having to say, no, I'm not this person. And Romans 7 says, there's nothing good dwelling me in my flesh, you know. And saying, that thing, that thing I've historically thought of myself, it's rotten and bad and it's never going to get any better. And actually, it was, it was a death. I had to separate from myself from that and say, I'm actually a different thing than that thing. I'm actually the referee in the ring, and I'm choosing on an ongoing basis which to follow. So I still have all the, you know, horrific thoughts and everything else. That thing's still there. I try to think of it like that movie, The Beautiful Mind, where the guy has the three, you know, and, and he just ignores them. Mm-hmm. They're always there, but he ignore. I try to make that like, oh, yeah, I, I know those thoughts came from you, but I don't have to do anything up for that. So that was this massive failure that I have. And during that time, I went to Job. Because of the story of Job, it gave me hope. My very being is largely shaped by Job. I I think of him as like my best friend. And when we come back, we'll continue with Tim Dunn's story, walking away from that old self And, of course, making choices to help create a better version of himself. And Tim struggles. Well, these are all of our struggles. Tim, a devout Christian, using the Bible as his source, and so many Americans do. And even if you don't, so much to learn here from this story. When we come back, more of Tim Dunn's story. And, by the way, his book, Yellow Balloons, well, you can get it at timdunn.org. That's timdunn.org. It's a terrific read and will help any family getting through tough circumstances and any person trying to overcome some obstacles of their own, especially the self-created kind. Tim Dunn's story continues here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Tim Dunn's story. He's an energy entrepreneur who's telling us, of all things, the story of Job and how it helped shape and correct his own walk in life. Here's the story of Job. So Job is an ancient billionaire. He's got trucking interests, you know, camels, thousand camels, so that's like a trucking line. He's a trading company, you know, because that's what they use camels for. They were on caravan. So he's probably a banker, too, because if you've been trade, you're banking. He's a banking conglomerate. He's got these massive farming interests. He's got an enormous number of donkeys, so he's, let's call it the cab. He's Uber, you know, he's got the Uber service. Uh, so he's an ancient billionaire. And the greatest man of the East, the Bible calls him. And he also had this giant family, which is also a huge blessing back in those days. And he's a super devout guy. He, he's the guy that everybody calls for advice when the city council meets, which back in those days they met in the gates. And then Job says, he says, he used to always call me in the gates. So Job is the man. That's the hero. He's, he's introduced to us. Then the next scene goes to heaven. Now, interestingly enough, in heaven are two characters, God and Satan. So Satan's running around, and God sees him. He says, hey, hey, Satan. God calls Satan over. And he says, yeah, what? He says, have you seen Job, my servant Job? Satan says, yeah, what of it? He said, well, you know, he makes you look so bad. You know, you were supposed to be like that, and you were so full of yourself that I fired you. Well, that's what you were supposed to look like. You're losing. You're losing. I took a, a lowly guy that was so much inferior to you, and he's making you look so bad. You are, I'm dissing you right here, okay? You're a failure. So, you know, that, that's trash talk, right? And Satan comes back and he says, wow, that look, 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 look. This, this isn't making me look bad. This guy is just a shrewd businessman, okay? He knows how to deal with you as a transaction, okay? He gives you what you want, you give him what he wants. What's so righteous about that? I mean, you, you pay good. He understands you pay good, you got good goodies, you get what you want. There's nothing righteous about this. If you let me ruin him, you'd see. So God says, okay, I tell you what, I'm, and, and he, this is an important part too. Satan says, well, you, you won't let me touch him, you put a wall around him, okay? So, you, you give me this protection, you got all this stuff, you know, uh, no, no, no wonder. So he says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll take the wall down. You can go do whatever you're going to do. Just don't touch his person. So Satan, you can kind of hear Satan, yeah, you know, I got, I got, I'm, this, watch this, what's, what's going to happen. So Satan goes down and he orchestrates for every business to go bankrupt all on the same day. They all go down and all the kids die. The only one's left the wife. And then one employee from each business is left to come and tell him the news. He gets it all at once. So there's no question that's supernatural, right? He wants to make sure Job gets the point, right? And here's what Job does. The Bible says he worships. And so he says, look, I was naked when I was born. I'm naked again. If I can't accept bad from the Lord, then I don't really believe in God. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Pretty amazing. So now you go to scene two in heaven. So now Satan's back again. Once again, God sees Satan and God says, hey, Satan, come over here. 
You know that trash talk you had before? You're losing again, okay? See, see what he did? He worshiped me. He, you are so losing at this point in time. You are Donsky. And Satan says, ah, well, what, what? And by the way, Satan is actually a job title. It means accuser. His real name's Lucifer. He goes by. So he says, well, yeah, but look, you wouldn't let me touch him. Everybody give whatever they have for their skin, you know, their health. Just let me touch him. Then you see what happens. And God says something real interesting right there that you have to, you have to grab onto to really get this story. He says, have you seen Job's reaction and how righteous he is, although you incited me to ruin him without cause? So God didn't do one thing negative to Job, but he authorized it. He opened the gate. He unlocked the door. And God takes responsibility for it. You can't lose that, okay? Hang on to that because we're going to have to ask the question, why would a loving God let that happen, right? You can't answer that question. You don't understand this story. Okay, so then Satan goes down and Job has his skin cancer, you know, and he's, he's sitting there scraping everything off. And now his wife comes and we find out why his wife didn't die. And she says, why do you still keep your integrity? Just curse God and die. Nice, nice uh, little uh, cherry on the top there, yeah. And so Job turns to his wife and, you know, he's in pain. He's had all this loss. And he says to his wife, this is the most unbelievable part of the whole story, I think. He says, you speak as a foolish woman. He, he doesn't. He won't even. He won't even say anything negative reaction to his wife. At, at the, even in the darkest depths, you speak like a fool. You're better than this, honey. You you don't want to say things that are wrong like this. You know we're not going to accept things from God. You don't speak like a foolish person. You're not a foolish person. Unbelievable. This guy. I mean, he's he's ringing all the bells. He's such an amazing guy. So. Then Job's three friends show up. Now, it's pretty, pretty common to say these friends are not friends. Baloney. Look, these guys come from a long distance. They sit with Job for seven days without saying a single word. Would you do that? Would you care? Would you do? I wouldn't do that. In the ancient Near East, it was like the custom that the aggrieved speaks first. They sit there seven days. And finally, Job starts talking. And then most of the rest of the book is this dialogue. Okay, and it amounts to this. The three friends say, look, Job, you, you, you had everything, right? You must have done something wrong. God would not have done this to you if you hadn't done something wrong. You just got to repent. And then God will give you everything back. It's, just, it's, it's pretty plain. It's pretty simple. You, you didn't have enough faith. You, you, you made a mistake, you sinned, something's wrong. Just make it right, and God will put it back. Because God, God's not unjust. And If you didn't do something wrong, it would be unjust for God to do this. Some version of that. And Job's response is always the same. He says, I'm a man of integrity. If I were to admit I did something that I didn't do, that would be like just taking a plea just to get something from God. I'm not going to do that. If I knew something, I'd do it, okay? But I don't have anything. I'm, I'm not going to admit to something I didn't do just for some benefit. I actually don't think that speaks well of God. 
Okay? So they're having this debate. Now, at the end of the book, God tells us his thought about this. The head of the three friends is a guy named Eliphaz. And God says this at the end. He says to Job, I'm really ticked at Eliphaz and his two friends because they did not speak well of me like you did. Now, that's very interesting. And Eliphaz and his two friends, God doesn't get mad at them because of what they said about Job. He's mad at them because of what they said about him. And you can read what Eliphaz and his two friends says. You know, God is almighty and God is righteous. And God, it all sounds great. But here was their fundamental belief about God. If you do what God wants, you will get back what you want. Okay. Now, does that sound like anybody else in the story? It's exactly the same view that Satan claimed. Okay. Now, I don't doubt that these three guys are believing guys and everything. Lots of us have wrong views about God. But here's the overriding message of Job. God is not a cosmic vending machine. He's not transactional. Okay. There is no price for the things on the shelf that you want. And it's good. It's good that that's the case because we don't know what we want as well as God does. And what great storytelling about a character that almost everybody in the world's heard of, a whole bunch of people believe in, and lots more have written about. And when we come back, we continue with Tim Dunn, the story of Job, and in the end, the story of a character that helped shape and straighten Tim Dunn's walk and so many others around America and around the world. Tim Dunn's story of Job, his own story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of Tim Dunn's remarkable telling of the story of Job. And this happened right here in our studio in Oxford, Mississippi. We're about an hour south of Memphis, and Tim had come in to tell the story of the loss of his granddaughter. And of course, one thing led to another, and Tim was soon telling the story of his own personal demons and of the story of this great biblical character that everybody knows. Let's continue where we last left off. Job asked for an audience. He says, you know, if I could explain to God what he's missing here, okay, if I could explain to God how he should look at these things, then this wouldn't be happening to me. God's righteous, 
He's powerful. He can do whatever he wants to. I accept it completely, but he's missing something. And if I had my day in court, I would explain myself and all this would go away. Now, interestingly enough, God does not blame Job one bit for that. But now the story concludes and he gets his day in court. And God actually appears to him, he says, in a whirlwind. Now, you'd think at this point, I mean, Job doesn't know God's bragging on him up in heaven, right? He's in the moment, he just knows his life is falling apart. <laughs> so now God shows up. You'd think at this point, he would at least say, hey, you're doing awesome. No, no, he doesn't. He says, listen, you asked for your day in court. You got it. And you can ask me all the questions you want, but I'm going first. So let's, how about, where were you when I made the universe? Do, tell me what's in the blueprint. Okay, tell, just tell me how, like, the reproductive system, how did you design that, for example, you know? Uh, how about rain, like the water cycle? How do, how do all these planets, like, hang in the space? And he just goes into all this physics of the universe, and uh, Job says, man, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't I ask. I open my mouth. I'm not finished, God says, okay? Let me ask you about these two, just two simple beasts, two brutes, you know, Behemoth and Leviathan. Okay, can you tame them? Can you capture them? No, I didn't think so, okay? You wouldn't want to mess with them, right? They're just dumb beasts that I made, okay? If you can't even tame dumb beasts, why would you think you could tame me? I made all of them, right? So that doesn't really make any sense, does it? And so Job says two things. He says, I realize I'm vile. Now, I realize I'm vile. Now, think about this. Job was the most righteous guy in the whole earth. God pronounced him righteous. But he realized his vile. You know, another way to translate that Hebrew word, small. And what he realizes is, I'm not near what I thought I was because I was comparing myself to all these other people. I'm the greatest of all men. But this is God. Okay, and that's number one. And the other thing he says, now that I see you, I just repent. I didn't really know who you were. And what Job realizes is, God's not a transactional God. He's not far away. God is close. So I saw that and I realized, oh, I'm vile. That's what I'm going through. I realize I am this jerk, you know, that stomps on people for my own good. And I'm not really seeking the best interests of others. Now, it's fine to stomp on people when they need to be stomped on, right? You got to fire somebody for the good of the company. That's okay. But that's also for their good. It's not just because you can. It's because it's not good to enable somebody to do something that's bad. But in my case, I was doing it for me. That's a fundamental problem. So, okay, I can identify with Job. I'm vile. That's the fundamental thing I was wrestling with. But then he does this thing of, I see you, and now I know you. I thought I knew you, but now I really know who you are. And that's when God says, okay, all done. All right, trial over. Let's give the guy double everything just to make sure everybody that's watching this understands how great a guy I think this is. This is the best guy ever. So then I grappled with two big questions. One is, well, why would a loving God allow this to happen to Job? And it, that question wasn't that hard. It seemed pretty clear Job got to know God. And so... Obviously, knowing God is one of the greatest rewards of this life. Okay, so, okay, that's pretty easy. But then the really hard question, I grappled with this for a long time, was 
why does it have to be this way? Why not just let us live a really comfortable life, go to heaven, go to Knowing God 101, have God tell all this stuff. He probably has a great funny monologue and then a great story. And then, you know, uh, why not learn that way? And a couple of verses kind of popped out at me. One is Ephesians 3.10, and it says, The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to a group of beings. And you'd think it'd be, well, revealed to believers or unbelievers or something like that. Here's what it says. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, the angels the demons. They're watching. There's a verse in 1 Peter that says the angels are longing to understand. They're stooping down, craning their necks, trying to understand what it is we're getting to understand. And you say, well, wait a minute. So they're understanding God by watching us. We haven't even been here this long. I mean, you got eons of history before human race started with the angels and they're in the presence of God. Job started off with Satan in heaven, right? They see him firsthand. They interact with him firsthand. They haven't just been through knowing God 101. They've been through PhD. So why is it that all these eons of time, they're watching us to understand about God? How can that be? And here's what dawned on me. They can't know God by faith. They can't. Because you can't have faith in what you see that's not faith. That's sight. Faith is believing something you can't see. And 1 Corinthians says, there's three great things, faith, hope, and love. And only one will remain. Love. And why is that? Because when we get to the other side in the new earth, we will have and we will see. You can't hope for what you have. You can't hope for a Christmas present in New Year's you already have it. You just opened it, right? You can't believe in something that you see. So faith and hope are going to be gone. And there's something about knowing God by faith and through hope that is so spectacular that the angels are trying to understand and can. So here's what I came to. The reason why God let his favorite guy be ruined, which he took responsibility for. The reason he did that is because Job is such a great guy that God didn't want him to miss out on one speck of opportunity to know him by faith. And when he did, he would be way better off. Now, what we don't know is how could that be better off for Job's kids? because God doesn't tell us their stories. I know that I'm going through this story with Mariah, I'm better off, but I can't explain how Mariah is. If knowing God by faith is such a big deal, why would a two-year-old passing that quickly be good for Mariah? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but God doesn't tell us everybody else's stories. He tells us our story. And thanks to Tim Dunn for that storytelling, sharing his own life, the tragedy that befell his family, and how it brought the family closer together. That was the loss of his granddaughter, Mariah, 
And then, of course, his own, well, his own shortcomings and all the pain he caused all by himself. His own creation, the kind that we all, we all can do in our lives and bring to our lives. Tim Dunn's story, Job's story, here on Our American Stories. And send your stories, your favorite character in a book that led you to a different path. It could be the Bible, it could be, well, whatever. Send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Share it with us. We'll put it right back up on the air and let everybody hear it. Again, Tim Dunn's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And in this next feature, you're about to hear the story of a book considered by many to be second only to the Bible in book sales. It was a book in almost every American household, and yet you may never have heard of it. On this National Bible Week, which was declared by President Franklin Roosevelt in 1941, we celebrate the Pilgrim's Progress. In the year 1676, a poor tinker named John Bunyan was imprisoned in Bedford Jail. While he was there, he started to write one of the most famous books in the English language. And everything is told as if it happened in a dream. I dreamed, he says, that I saw a man with a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. As he read the book, he began to weep. Then, in a lamentable voice, he cried out, What shall I do to be saved? For he lived in the city of destruction, which he learnt from his book, was doomed to be burnt with fire from heaven, and everyone who lived there would perish in the flames. The Pilgrim's Progress is a spiritual allegory that follows the path of Christian, an everyman character weighed down by his burden of sin. He leaves the city of destruction and learns that nothing can remove his burden other than the cross of Christ. The over three centuries old novel begins behind bars. Its author, John Bunyan, opens with a sentence of luminous simplicity that has the haunting compulsion of the hook in a great melody. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den, and I laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. A den is a prison. You see, Charles II, the King of England, passed a law forbidding people to preach unless they had a license from the state. But you couldn't get a license unless you agreed with the tax-supported Anglican Church. And Bunyan certainly didn't. On one such occasion, he was asked to stop preaching, and he would be set free. He replied, If you release me today, I will preach tomorrow. 
those now famous words led to a nearly 12-year imprisonment for unlawful preaching. It was during this time that he began to pen his classic work. Published in February of 1678, it quickly became one of the most popular stories of all time. Over 100,000 copies were sold within his lifetime alone, and today, with 250 million copies sold, it is one of the most widespread books in existence. It is a book every American had been exposed to until the last few decades. It has been translated into over 200 languages, and it has never been out of print. As with everything in this story, there is no hiding the truth about who the characters are and what they want with the protagonist. For example, Christian encounters people named piety, simple, sloth, presumption, faithful, talkative, crafty, or little faith. And the readers see each character live up to its name. And throughout the story, Christian is being overcome by his burden of sin, which is literally a massive Santa-sized pack on his back that he is incapable of delivering himself from. Pilgrim continued upon his way as the enemy of his soul increased his efforts against the traveler. On his way to the celestial city, Christian is diverted by the secular ethics of Mr. Worldly Wiseman. How rude of me. My name is Wiseman, Worldly Wiseman. You, of course, will have heard of my family. We are high stock, we are, if I do say so. Oh, yes, yes. Ask us anything, anything you like, and you will find the answer. Who urges him to lead a practical, happy existence apart from Christ. Evangelist. Ha! Dullards, the whole lot of them. They are pilgrim. Dullards, dullards. His way, utter foolishness. He instead encourages Christian... I want to help you. ...to seek deliverance from his burden through law and rule-keeping. I perceive you are a religious man, which is good, good, very good. The world needs more religious people. It does, Pilgrim, it does. With the help of Mr. Legality and his son, Civility, from the village of Morality. Mr. Legality will show you how to be rid of that burden of yours. Evangelist meets the wayward Christian and shows him that Mr. Worldly Wise Man, Mr. Legality, and his son, Civility, are false guides, descended from slaves who look to enslave other would-be pilgrims. When Christians unto carnal men give ear, out of their way they go and pay for it dear. For master worldly wise man can but show a saint the way to bondage and to woe. Then as Christian walks along the wall of salvation, he sees Christ's tomb and cross, at this vision, his burden falls to the ground. The journey continues along a road filled with monsters and spiritual terrors. Christian confronts such emblematic characters as giant despair, ignorance, and the demons of the valley of the shadow of death. Often disguised as something that would help him, evil continues to accompany Christian on his journey. But friends hopeful and faithful also join him. The two enter the wicked town of Vanity and visit its famous fair called Vanity Fair. 
which lasts year-round. Indeed, there are stores where every foolish trifle in the world is up for sale. In addition, you could buy titles and honours and preferment to high office and vain pleasures and empty delights of every kind. It is an institution of long-standing, artfully set up by the Prince of the Demons, Beelzebub himself, in a place through which all who are pilgrims and strangers in this world must pass when going to the Celestial City. Many, it is feared, get no further on their way. They resist temptation and are mocked by the townspeople. Why aren't you buying our merchandise? Buy, buy, buy. Eventually, the citizens of Vanity imprison Christian and Faithful for mocking their local religion. Faithful defends himself at his trial and is executed, rising to heaven after death. But Christian escapes and continues his journey. With his new companion, Hopeful, they vanquish many enemies before arriving at the Celestial City with the line that still reverberates through the English literary tradition. So he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. There's no book in English apart from the Bible to equal Bunyan's masterpiece for the range of its readership or its influence on writers as diverse as William Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Nathaniel Hawthorne, E. E. Cummings, Mark Twain, C.S. Lewis, John Steinbeck, and even Enid Blyton. Huckleberry Finn speaks for many readers when, recalling his Mississippi education, he says, There were some books, too, piled up perfectly exact on each corner of the table. One was a big family Bible full of pictures. One was Pilgrim's Progress, about a man that left his family. It didn't say why. I read considerable in it now and then. The statements was interesting, but tough. The Pilgrim's Progress is likely one of the greatest works of literary allegory that exists. I realize how bold that statement might be, but one only reads the book to find the truth steeped in that boldness. In Hollywood terms, the novel has a perfect arc. While Pilgrim's Progress charts the arc of the Christian journey, it's not limited to the Christian experience. Truly the brilliance of John Bunyan is realized in his astute understanding and the following portrayal of the human journey and condition as seen through Christian's eyes. Bunyan had a wonderful ear for the rhythms of colloquial speech and his allegorical characters come to life in dialogue that never fails to advance the narrative. Story is one thing. The simple clarity and beauty of Bunyan's prose is something else. Braided together, style and content unite to make The Pilgrim's Progress a timeless classic. Great job as always, Greg, on that. And thanks to the great folks at the Stetson Family Office and Essentials in Education for sponsoring this National Bible Week series. And by the way, they've designed a terrific curriculum for schools called Wisdom Literature from the Bible. And they also have had a book out for some time now called The Bible and Its Influence, which is in 650 schools in states across this country. 
And to learn more, go to teachthebibleinschools.org, teachthebibleinschools.org, because to not understand the Bible is to not understand, well, Western literature or Western civilization itself. Again, National Bible Week, all week long, Pilgrim's Progress, its story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all over our great country. We've been spending some time in Austin, Texas, at a place called Community First Village, a 51-acre master plan community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a loving community for men and women who've spent years, often decades, surviving on the streets of Austin. Some people focus on the fact that this village has beautiful RVs, and gorgeous small homes designed by the finest architects in the nation. But that's not this place's secret sauce. No, it's the people who live and work at Community First that make it transformative. To get a sense of that, we'd like you to hear a story from Larry Crawford, the fellow who fixes anything and everything that breaks in this community, from air conditioners to trucks. Here's Larry. I bought myself a new truck, and I've always been a kind of the base model truck buy-in kind of guy. And But I'm a little older now, and I have a little more money, so my wife went shopping with me, and she's like, oh, I love this leather. So what I ended up purchasing was the Longhorn Laramie diesel. has all these bells and whistles on it. It's got things on the dashboard I still don't know how to work. Uh, it's four-wheel drive. It's got fancy wheels and running boards, and it's just a really a luxury pickup truck. And because we're in Texas, it's just like a... I don't think it's a written law, but it's kind of like a law that when you get a new truck, you got to go show your buddies. You know, you got to go show the guys you work with your new truck. So I'd had the truck about a week. And uh, so I decided to drive it to work and show it to my buddies. And the end of the day, my wife called me and she she asked me, she's like, hey, can you go to the grocery store and pick up this one item? And that's several years ago. I don't remember what it was. And so I'm like, yeah, I can do that. So I, I leave work and. I'm heading down Loyola because there's a HEB grocery store at uh, Springdale and 183. So I was heading that way and I saw this homeless guy that I, that I had known for several years walking down the street. And so I just stopped in the middle of the road, rolled the window down. I was like, hey, Mike, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going to HEB. And I'm like, jump in. So we go to HEB and, and I'm like, I just need one thing. I said, I'm going to go and get what I need and then I'll just wait for you at the truck and I'll take you because he lives in a camp uh, not too far from here and uh, I'll take you back to your camp and uh, so I, I get my one item and I'm sitting out waiting for him to show up and he comes out of the store with two boxes of beer and and uh, he's, a, he's a profound alcoholic and uh, I mean without exaggeration I've seen him falling down drunk at 7 a.m. Uh, He's a lovely human being. He just has lost control of his drinking. Anyhow, so 
I drop him off at his camp. I go home, fix dinner, and the day just ends. I go to bed, you know. And about three weeks later, we do this thing here at the village. We call it Reach Out. And basically, get a bunch of chartered school buses, and we go get the homeless people from the camps in downtown. We bring them out here to the village. We let them take showers, get haircuts, get a real good hot meal, not fast food, but good hot meal. Um, you know, there's somebody here that's like nurses and doctors and check their blood sugars and their diabetes and their blood pressure and do all of these things. And um, so anyhow, I'm standing over by the corner of the shop and, and I see Mike get off the bus and he's screaming at me. And, uh, and it's not uncommon for homeless people to scream at me because they all want the same thing from me. Uh, I'm a smoker. They want to, hey, you got a cigar, do you have a cigarette, do you have, you know. And so I knew that's what Mike wanted. So I'm just sitting there kind of silently and I said, okay, hurry up, Mike, so you can get a smoke from me and I can go on with my business. And he's, as he's approaching me, he's maybe 10 or 12 feet away and I could already smell him because he hadn't had a bath in a long time. And he drops down to his knees in front of me and he takes this old ratty backpack off and he's like, man, I got you something. And I'm like, what do you mean you got me something? He said, man, I bought you a present. I'm like, man, you have to get me nothing. And he's like, no, no. He said, I see how you treat people on the streets. He said, and I wanted to give you a gift. And he said, I noticed in your old truck, the truck I drive to work that's sitting out there by the shop right now every day, it's a, an 05 Dodge Diesel. I have the black velour interior, which in 2005 was pretty nice. And um, anyhow, he said, I noticed in your old truck that you had a Bible that had the same color cover as the interior of your truck. And I'd, at that point, I'd been driving that truck for like 12 years, and I didn't realize that the cover on my Bible and my black upholstery were the same color. It never occurred to me. Anyhow, so he had ridden in my new truck, and he said, I got you a Bible that has the same color leather as the leather on the seats in your new truck. And he said, I went to the Bible store. He said, I didn't even realize there was more than one kind of Bible. He said, I told the lady, just sell me the most popular one that had this color leather. He said, the receipt's in the box. He said, and the lady said, you can bring it back and get whatever kind of Bible you read if this is not what you want. And I can tell you right now, it wouldn't matter which Bible. It could have been any, it could have been a Bible in a foreign language. I wouldn't have traded it back in. And at that moment man my eyes started leaking i wasn't like crying or nothing but i was just like i just like couldn't believe that this guy which is like the poorest of all the poor people that you ever met had bought me a bible to match the interior of my truck and and the thought kept going through my head it's like man I, this guy could take this back get his money back this i'm driving an expensive truck i live in a nice house i could go buy a box of bibles and wouldn't even miss the money but I, I just get something kept telling us like, no, you need to take this gift from this man. And, and I did. And I still have that Bible still in my truck. And um, uh, it was a lesson for me in the unbelievable generosity of human beings that man probably panhandled for weeks to be able to get enough money for his daily survival and then be able to accumulate the $77 he paid for that Bible. Uh, not realizing that he probably could have 
just went to the local church and asked for one. They probably would have given him one for free. He didn't get that. But, but anyhow, so the struggle that man went through to get that, uh, it's one of my most valued possessions. And uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Great job on that, Stan. And what a message of generosity that can come from anywhere. And we do these stories about the homeless, about prison inmates, right next to entrepreneur stories, stories about billionaires, because in the end, these are all great American stories and show our heart and our soul. Larry Crawford's Bible story, here on Our American Stories. stories and our next story is a story about love and family faith and freedom it's brought to us by our own greg hengler and the good folks at the harriet tubman underground railroad visitor center in church creek maryland let's take a listen on july 4th 1776 a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived With a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, its noble, if imperfect, parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, Deep within the backbone of the American economy, a large protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves The dollar value of slaves was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together. Slavery was no sideshow in American history. It was the main event. Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educators' list of evildoers. Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. That ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government. That slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America so that when you think about people running away or people striking out against the institution, 
they are in, embarking on a pretty ambitious uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like grape nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground, nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman's scholar, James McGowan. There was an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads in the, uh, started in this country. Uh, some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, he re- the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. When the uh, uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like this, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked in the Underground Railroad. In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus. Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s, called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher. There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel. As a part of that Great Awakening, more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings. In the end, enslaved Americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master, but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom. As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know the road. Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time 
and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes. And I prayed to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for ever since. Harriet Tubman. We all know her name. But who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20 by 20 foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect, and fear and saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. After getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches. Name your price. In 1849, Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her. I don't know, Edward. You don't look too healthy to me. In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted. So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never gonna change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. Edward, let me help! Edward! Edward! The prayer proved prophetic. (laughs) Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more. There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories.
Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. And we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. After an initial attempt to escape failed, when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return, she set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north through the Underground Railroad took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made my way out of slavery and into the promised land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back. For my beloved. For my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that dream, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends and friends of friends back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasaya, and her two children, a son, and an infant daughter who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kasaya's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day. Kasaya was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps. The bidding started. Kasaya's husband, John, stood in the crowd. Their eyes met. And John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. John won the bid. 
but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more, he forgot to chain Kasaya up. Psst, now go, go. Kasiah, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. They eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves, to whom she had sent messages, to meet her eight or ten miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, and because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs. And Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said, I was going to lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We've got to move on. Remember, Henry, dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, (laughs) he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody. Henry made it to freedom. And years later, Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee. Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down. Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad. The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. 
you hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope, even though we enslaved, chained, whipped, hope still lives. She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field. When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory. I heard God speaking to me, saw his angels, and I saw my dreams. There were times I knew things for they was going to happen. I could see trouble coming, and I could go the other way. There was times I fell into sleep, but was completely awake, more aware than when I was awake. Things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Stories. final segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off. In one instance, in 1856, the word spread through the countryside, she's here! And four young men answered the call. What you men want is a bounty hunter. As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods... Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold. And I said no such thing as too cold and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder. But then I came out the other side. The boys followed. Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. 
If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent, General Tubman as we call her. Here's professor of constitutional law Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh, what they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God. It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail. Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett. When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing. She needed places to stay. She needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact. Thomas Garrett had money. He had social position. And as a result, he was given Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and as well as clothing and food. He would tell this story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, well, I know you've got money for me because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, well, how do you know I got money for you, Harry? And, you know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he, he would have it. God bless you, Garrett said this of Harriet. I had never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10, 1913, 
the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. Swing The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn. She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women, whom you have let out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great-great-grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by the slave owner. Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved. And she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her. Everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, you know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps. It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have been able to form alliances cross racial lines. The fact is, that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do. 
because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there is a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people. And I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Roll, Jordan, roll, my soul arise in heaven, Lord, for you and Jordan, roll. Everybody say, roll, Jordan, roll, roll, Jordan, roll, my soul arise in heaven, Lord, for you and Jordan, roll. Jordan Road. Oh,